Welcome to the Grace Harbor Church Sermon Podcast. Grace Harbor Church is located in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. For more information, visit our website at ghokc.com. We're going to read this morning from Matthew chapter 8. We will finish Matthew chapter 8 today. Uh, Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 through 34. Uh, If you don't have a Bible... Uh, there is a Bible in the seat in front of you, and um, we, we, we don't just like to preach inspirational messages. We like to preach from the Bible, um, like from the text itself, and so we very strongly encourage you uh, to, to have your Bible with you because, uh, God willing, we'll have your eyes on that a lot, um, and so it's a great thing to follow along with. Hey, adults, it's also another wonderful way to uh, just... Show an example to the children. Uh, just, hey, mom and dad and those around us uh, are, know where these places are. Um, if you don't know where these place, this place is in the Bible, that's fine. It's page 813, um, and so you can turn, turn there for today's text. Um, if you are able, um, I'm going to ask for you to stand. Um, I know that it's cold outside um, and that at some point in life, bones don't work the right way. Um, and I've had those conversations already this morning with people, so I'm not calling anybody out. People have said, you might think about this. And so if you're able to, please stand. Um, and if not, uh, you are, you are, God is no less pleased with you. So um, let's, let's uh, read from Matthew 8, 28 through 34. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Um, Isaiah chapter 40 says that the, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that uh, the, the grass withers, the flower fades, uh, the seasons change, um, people come and go, um, we, we ourselves <laughs> come and go, we, are, we um, are, are, are not any more worthy of, um, of, of ultimate allegiance um, than, than anyone else around us. We are as, as in, deeply in need of, of, of grace um, and, and mercy um, than anyone else. And so, Lord, we thank you that, that, in the, uh, that, that in light of all of that, that despite all of those things, all of those things that are uh, not trustworthy, um, that, that your word uh, stands forever. Um, and so, Lord, we, we come into to this time, uh, we, 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 we preach, we, we listen, um, we, we understand what is, what is going on in this, this moment, the preaching of your word, to be, um, to be a source of, of an infallible, inspired, inerrant uh, word from you. 
Um, and so we thank you um, that just as your Holy Spirit guided the writers in, in writing this, that you would also uh, guide our hearts um, and our minds, help us to be attentive um, and, and diligent to, to what your word says, um, and that we, would, we truly would, would um, see marvelous things about who you are. Um, thank you for our time. Thank you for, for this church um, and, and for these folks. Um, I pray, Lord, that you would uh, just, just build us up in this time. Um, comfort, convict um, in, in this. Lord, help us to be the things that, that we're not. Um, help us to know the things that we don't. Um, and we pray these things in the name of your son. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so here we are at the end of Matthew chapter 8 um, with one of the most interesting stories in all of scriptures, right? Um, does any of you remember like the first time you heard this, this passage or read it or heard someone preach on it? Um, I do. I was in high school. Um, many of you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to get political in the pulpit, but there's, there's, a, there's a state, I think he's one of our state uh, uh, representatives or congressmen, James Lankford. Um, he, before his time in politics, was uh, in ministry. Um, and he came to my school and preached this message, and uh, I don't remember anything he said, um, but I just remember being very captivated by it at the time, um, which is another opportunity for me to share a funny story. Last week, uh, after church, we got in the truck. My older kids are in service every Sunday. We got in the truck, and JB um, said the thing that no one was saying out loud. Um, he, he looked over and he said, Dad, did you preach today? <laughs> yeah. Yes, I did. So... I am very aware uh, this morning <laughs> that, um, that, that when it comes to like just the, the, the week by week impact that preaching makes, um, it, it can somewhat feel insignificant. But, but as someone who has uh, been blessed to sit under others preaching for many years, I know that preaching has a cumulative effect. Um, even though you may not remember little tidbits and things like that, that cumulatively, um, it is a way that, that God has chosen to, to grow us and to disciple us. Um, and so I, I'd say that to commend you uh, for, for being here today. Um, I think what we're doing here is, is deeply significant. And I, I also believe that it's not all that we do. Um, preaching is not all that God disciples us through. Um, it, it's also through what we do throughout the week, what we do in our homes, what we, what we do with one another, um, as, as the Bible just, again, comprehensively kind of lays out what does the life of a disciple look like. And so this is one of those pieces. And so I'm praying today that you at least remember something that I say, uh, that the Word says, uh, so, that, so that you don't text me later this week like, wait a second, did you preach this Sunday? Yes, I did. So... Um, Here's, here's, what, here's what we, we want to see in today's text. We want to affirm, and I want to encourage us with a deeply comforting and theological truth from today's text, and it's simply this. Like, this is the bottom line. Last week, Jesus is God. Um, this, week's, this week's kind of bottom line is this. Jesus has ultimate authority over Satan and evil. That's a, that's a deeply comforting and a deeply theological truth. Jesus has ultimate authority over Satan and evil, not will have, not had at one time, but Jesus has today ultimate authority over Satan and over evil. And so last week, the text in Matthew chapter 8, verses 22 through 27, it emphatically established for us that Jesus is God. 
Jesus is God. Uh, the, the, the disciples, like we saw this, this morning, even our kids reading, the disciples get to the end of this uh, debacle on the ocean and, and, and they ask, what kind of man is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? Well, the Jewish people would have known that only God controls the seas. Psalm 89 and Psalm 107 uh, proclaims, the people of God proclaim that God is the one who controls the seas and the, and the waves. And so they would have known that God has the power to do such a thing, which is why they ask, what kind of man is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? And we're able to answer because of what Matthew's doing in his gospel, that Jesus is God. He is the one who controls the winds and the seas. Jesus is the son of God, as the demons will even acknowledge in today's text. Did you catch that? Did you you see that? The demons say, uh, the, the demons acknowledge Jesus. What have you to do with us, O son of God? Jesus is the Son of God, but Jesus is not only the Son of God, he is God. He is God, and that's a wild claim. Um, That is essentially um, the core belief about Christ that distinguishes Christianity from all other major religions in the world, that we don't believe that Jesus is merely a prophet, a good teacher, a good man, but that he is Lord, he is God, Um, and so that is... That is what distinguishes us, Christians, from other major religions in the world. And so, like we saw last week in Colossians, we can answer these questions with the good church answer, Jesus. And so this is your time. Remember, the good church answer is Jesus. Um, who is the creator? Jesus is the Colossians 1:16. For by him and through him all things were created. Jesus is creator. For and by whom were all things created? Jesus. Who is before all things? Jesus. In whom does all the fullness of God dwell? Jesus. And so as God, today's text will show us that Jesus not only has all authority over sickness, he not only has all authority over his disciples, he not only has all authority over nature, as we've seen in Matthew 8 so far, Jesus has all authority over the spiritual realm. And that's what we see in this little section. And so, so, so remember that the scriptures are not in any way unclear. We say this almost every week through chapter 8. The scriptures are not in any way unclear on their position on who Jesus is, that he is, that he is God. It's making that kind of claim. Next week's text, um, I can't wait for next week, and that's actually two weeks, because next week... We'll talk about this later, God's heart for the nations. Um, but in two weeks, we'll, we'll, we'll preach the text, who can forgive sins but God alone? Christ. He is God. And so the scriptures are very clear on who they present Christ as. And so today, Jesus shows his deity um, in displaying authority over the spiritual realm. And so here's, here's the thing. Um, remember what we've talked about, that, that Matthew is writing his gospel um, to a group of people somewhat after the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. He's a couple of decades later, potentially. Matthew's writing this gospel either to a Jewish congregation, a Jewish people, or at least people who were familiar with the Jewish expectation of the Messiah. And so what Matthew is, is telling us is that every ounce of authority that the Jewish people believed the Old Testament God, Yahweh, to have, Jesus has. That, that who they believe God to be, the Jews, who they have in their mind that God is, this holy God, Yahweh, 
that, that who they believe God to be, Jesus is that. He is the exact representation. And so here's, here's, what, here's what we've also done each week and that we'll do with this text today. And we'll, we'll read this text again in just a minute. So as we've done each week, it is important to highlight the primary message of these texts. And so if we miss the primary message of these texts through Matthew chapter eight, um, it will be easy for us to think of each of these texts through Matthew eight and nine, they primarily have to do with, with us um, and, and how Jesus prescriptively acts in every situation. And so remember, we've talked about if we read Matthew eight and miss that Matthew's main point is to present Jesus as this authoritative God man, then, then we will apply every scenario in Matthew 8, Jesus healing the leper, Jesus um, healing the fever, Jesus, um, Jesus healing the, the person with the demons and the, and, the, and the storm. We'll think that if God doesn't act in those ways all the time, then God must be letting us down. Now, does Jesus at times operate miraculously even today? I believe so. Firmly believe that. Jesus still performs miracles. Um, and, and so, but, but what we have to see is that the point of this text is not so much what does this mean for me, it's what did Matthew intend for us to know about Christ. And so we find out something deeply about Christ in these. And so if we think that these texts are primarily about us and how he will deal with us, remember what we said the first week of Matthew chapter eight, that God's, God's answer to your request for healing is always yes. Remember we're saying that? Have you grappled with that a little bit? Like God's answer for our healing, when we ask God to heal us, his answer is 100, Christians, 100% 100 of the time is yes. Now, the, the difference is whether or not he will heal us now or in eternity. Um, he, he may choose to heal us now, praise God, for those situations. But if you are a child of God, God has promised you an eternity with him where there will be no more sickness, no more sadness, no more death. And he will heal. And so we may ask God, just as the leper did at the beginning of chapter eight, if, if you... Um, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. It's not a matter of whether or not God can, but we ask God if he will. And so, church family, maybe you're dealing with something in your life. If there's something you're dealing with in your life, I would say that, that the prayer of faith for, for you is to ask God to heal, is to ask God to intervene now. Um, and, and, and then I believe that God will give you the peace in those moments whether he chooses to heal and intervene now or, or whether he says, hey, listen, there is a day coming where there will be no more strife. The strife will be over. And God's answer to your request for intervention is yes. So I want us to just see that. We, we have to see this because, guys, I know we're almost done with chapter eight, and I think we'll stop kind of going on this rabbit trail here. But, but the things that the, the church world has done with a, a, a chapter like Matthew 8, have, have, I think have really harmed us and really harmed what we, what we believe about God because the, the message about Jesus calming the storm in many churches is more about you and more about what you gotta do to step out of the boat and what, more what you gotta do in the storm rather than trusting a God who is with you in the midst of that storm. 
So I think it's very, very important for us to, to kind of to harp on this. And so what happens when we personalize these too much is that we are crushed and oftentimes we lose faith when Jesus may not choose to intervene in all of these ways. One of the reasons why um, this is easy to do, like I was talking about, is because of the prevalence of, of, of false teaching. Listen, I'm not going to come up here and just like hammer on this. It's, it's time for, that's for another day. But our susceptibility to these false messages and teaching, we live in a, we live in a very therapeutic time, don't we? We live in an extremely therapeutic time. Um, and, 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 and some of those some of those approaches may be good in certain areas of life, but we have, we have over-therapeutized, did I just make up that word? We have over-therapeutized everything. And so we live in a highly therapeutic time, um, and, and it is of particular ease, as the Apostle Paul states in 2 Timothy, to accumulate teachers to suit our own passions. Man, is that something we're seeing today or not? It is easy for us to accumulate teachers to suit our own passions. And then Paul says, and to turn away from listening to the truth. And so, by the way, Paul says this in the context of charging young Timothy to preach the word. So, so, so Paul is saying, hey, one of the ways that you, Timothy, that actively, that you're going to proactively um, thwart these, these temptations to accumulate teachers for their own passions is you're going to preach the word to the people. And so, again, this is one of God's ways that he is forming and shaping our hearts and our minds. And so, kind of, I digress now. But with that, the gospel writer here in Matthew sets out primarily to present to the readers. So we, here's, here's, what, here's what Matthew is trying to do. The gospel writer here sets out primarily to present to the readers that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, and then he ramps this claim up. Um, not only is he the Savior and the Messiah of his people that they were expecting, that he's coming and he's going to, to deliver his people from all of these, these, these political and earthly um, enemies, and so not only is he that Messiah, but in this text, he's going to show us that he is the king and the Lord of his people and of all things, as Paul will later say. And so remember, this text is primarily about who Christ is. And so what Matthew will do with a lot of precision, what he'll do with some poignancy, is he will show us how this God-man relates with his people. That, please don't miss that. Um, though, though maybe it's not the primary message of Matthew... It is not insignificant or irrelevant that Jesus continually interacts with people, right? And so we don't just have Matthew and we don't just have Jesus coming as this, this God-man and, and, and leaving his throne of heaven and coming to sit on a throne on the earth, right? No, he doesn't go from throne to throne. He goes from one place to another place, as, and as John will say, to dwell among his people, what kind of king does that, right? Um, that is so, see, Asher just needs to come preach this message. See, this is, this is amazing to me. Asher's like, Asher, you're amazing. You're, you just, you're like coloring and you're like in, engrossed in what you're doing, but he's just like, I hear you. So that's amazing. I can't do that. Um, I'm, I'm like a, have to be on one thing. But that's right, Jesus is the kind of king that does that. Um, not many other kings, earthly kings, um, do you have the kind of access to that we have to Christ. 
Um, you know that. Uh, there's, there's, there's gates and there's walls and there's, there's structures in place to where you cannot approach a king. But, but John chapter 1 will present Jesus as the king who what, dwells among his people. What a crazy thing, right? What a truly sensational thing. And so I, wanna, I do want to grab your attention here and say something that may, that, that may sound too sensational, but here's what we need to see in, in, in this text, that, that I am utterly blown away and captivated by Jesus. Now, am I saying that that drives every decision that I make in my life and that I have no sin that I have dealt with in the past and, and fight and wage war against now? No, I sure wish that my full allegiance was to Jesus 24-7, 365. But when I read a text like this, and when I study a text like this, it is hard to not be utterly captivated by the kind of king that Christ is. The kind of king, this Jesus, this God and man ought to utterly captivate our hearts and our minds. And so I believe that's Matthew's primary aim. And that is why we just aren't given a whole lot of details about this demon-possessed man. By the way, if you want to read more, a more extended version of this story, Mark chapter 5 tells another, um, is Mark's account of this, of this story. But listen, in Matthew, do you notice that we're not given a whole lot of details about the demon-possessed man? Like we just, the, the, the demon-possessed man, Jesus walks up to him, there they are, um, and, then, and then that's really all that we're given. We, we're, not, we're not given a whole lot of information on whose pigs they are, right? You know, like out in the country, I don't know about you, I've got grandparents that lived out in the country, and, you know, there's like a million black cows out there. But my, but my grandpa could, like, look at a black cow and be like, oh, yeah, that's so-and-so's down the street. <laughs> How do you know that? Well, they had, you know, they had brands and tags and all those things, but I think it was, like, deeper than that. Like, grandpa just knew whose cow that was. It's like, grandpa, there's a, a thousand cows out there, and he looks just like all the other ones. How did you know that was your neighbor's? And so we're not given a whole lot of information on the possessed men, who's, who the pigs belong to, or why the demons asked to go to the pigs. We don't, we don't know. That. Those are questions that pop up in my mind when I read this text. Why the demons asked to go into the pigs? Well, listen, I don't think that all of those things are the point that Matthew's trying to establish here, and I want us to see that. I, want us, I really want to see this. Here's, here's what I want us to see, okay? I've got this underlined in my notes because I really want us to hear this. I believe that the single word of Jesus, go, in, in verse 32. See that? Some of you have red letters. It's the only red letter in that section. I believe that that one single word ought to be more at the center of the story than any other part in our minds and curiosity. <laughs> like, that's the point I think that Matthew's trying to make, is that Jesus speaks a word and something Something, I don't even know the word I'm looking for, uh, interdimensional happens, um, spiritual happens. Something happens in the spiritual realm with one single word of Jesus. And I believe that in this text, hey, the pigs, an amazingly curious story. Uh, the demon-possessed men, um, an amazingly curious story. Um, but I believe that in Matthew's text, the word go is what should grab our attention, that Jesus speaks the word and this happens. And so far, so far in Matthew chapter eight, we're taught that Jesus has authority in heaven and on earth. And now here in this text, we see that Jesus even has power under the earth. 
that Jesus has power. When Jesus says, all authority has been given unto me, what does the word all mean in the Greek? All. Yeah, see, we're, we're scholars here. Jesus says, I've got all authority, and that is in all places. Um, Matthew Henry says something that really took my breath away as we consider the power of Jesus with this single word. He says, I wish I had this on the screen because it, it's, I'm gonna read this twice. It says, the devil, having power over death, not as a judge, but as executioner, delighted to converse among the trophies of his victory, the dead bodies of men. But there where he thought himself in the greatest triumph and elevation, just as afterward in Golgotha, the place of the skull, did Christ conquer and subdue him. Let me read it one more time. The devil having the power of death, not as a judge, but as executioner, delighted to converse among the trophies of his victory, these two demon-possessed men, the dead bodies of men. But there where he thought himself, Satan, where he thought himself in the greatest of triumph and of elevation, just as he did afterward at Golgotha, the place of the skull, Christ conquered and subdued him. And so here's Satan maybe boasting of, hey, here's these two men. How are you going to deal with them? And Jesus there, just as he did at the cross and the resurrection, puts Satan where he ought to be and casts them into the pigs and into the ocean. And so here's the deal. We could stop right now, and some of you probably wish I would. We could stop right now and have a sermon that's been faithful to the text, but we've not really gotten to the text yet. But it's a simple and straightforward message that Jesus has authority over Satan and evil. Let's read this text again, and then I want to show us something. And when Jesus came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding some distance from them. And when the demons begged him, saying, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going to that city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. So listen, this text is not a text that exhausts the doctrine of demons and Satan. Um, this text is not a, a text that exhausts a, a, a way for us to, to fully establish a theology of demon possession and all of those things. It is a text that, that shows us a fundamental reality that Jesus has authority over them. So whatever we believe, whatever we believe about demons and demon possession and all those things, those are those, some of you in here, and this is actually a really good thing. This is not a, this is not a criticism. Um, some of you in here are, are, are very deep in your knowledge about like the, 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 spiritual, the spiritual realm. But, but let me just say that if your knowledge about the spiritual realm does not start on the baseline foundation that Jesus has authority over all of them, then your, your, your knowledge is, is somewhat of a house of cards. And that's simply what Matthew's trying to establish here, that whatever we form on top of this, that there's a foundational reality and truth that Jesus has ultimate authority over Satan and evil. And we must see that. 
But, but there is a lot of text, there is a lot of context here. It's placed in the flow of the whole chapters, actually these two chapters, and I want us to see two additional components. And so here's what we've done so far. Let me recap you. I wish I would have put this like in two clean points, but I didn't. The, 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 where we've been so far is establishing the authority of Jesus, that that's the primary aim of this text. Um, our second point of this sermon is essentially going to be this. That, that as front and center in this text as the authority of Jesus is, that we can highlight one other idea that we see from the text. And I just want to sum it up as this, the mission of Jesus. All right? So this is where kind of the, 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 the application, maybe the, the practical nature of this text kind of starts. So Jesus has ultimate authority. And then the second thing that we see is that uh, is, is, is we see a unique component about the mission of of Jesus. If you would, let's turn to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. <clears throat> Luke 19:10. One short, brief little verse. Luke 19:10. Would someone read that real loud? Are, are those letters read in anyone's Bibles? So, so this isn't just commentary on the, on the life of Jesus, right? This isn't, this isn't not, not to diminish the gospel writers, um, but this isn't, this isn't commentary or opinion on what the mission of Jesus is in regards to the lost. Um, it's, it's words from the mouth of Christ himself. Just as authoritative as Jesus' word go was, so as authoritative is what Jesus says here that his mission to the earth is, to seek and to save that which was lost. And so the scriptures fill us in on much about what Jesus came and did. There's a lot of things that Jesus came and did, right? Um, there's, there's lots of things that he accomplished on this earth, but at no point is what Jesus came and did less than seeking and saving that which was lost, Everything that Jesus does is, is really for, for this aim, is to seek and to save that which was lost. And so, moreover, we must not think the mission of Jesus to seek and to save that which was lost is any lesser part of what he came to do. We must embrace that it was very forefront in what Jesus came to do, as our Lord tells us with his own words in Luke 19. And so Matthew's account has this mission of Jesus as a major storyline of chapter eight. Notice, notice, notice something. We're gonna, we're gonna kind of, I'm gonna bring this in with this text. Notice that this all begins with Jesus coming down from the chapter seven mountain, right? You've got Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew five through seven. He's on a mountain. And all of this, this, these two chapters, eight and nine, begin with Jesus' first move being coming down the mountain. He comes, he comes down the mountain, and along the way, him coming down the mountain, and then when he gets to the bottom of the mountain, he encounters all kinds of people, and, and that results in him giving orders to board a boat and to go to the other side of Capernaum. So that, that happens in, um, in, in verse 18 of chapter 8. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. Jesus comes down the mountain. He heals some people. People are starting to flood towards him. Jesus says, let's get in a boat and go to the other side, right? And, and, and then the beginning of chapter 9 says that he came to his own city. Now, someone may know this in this room. I, I tried just, I, I can't confidently state either way, but, 
But it says that he came to his own city. Whether that was Capernaum or Nazareth, I don't know. Whether he was going back to Capernaum, where he started, or whether his own city meant he was going to Nazareth, um, I'm not sure. But either place, I looked on the map. Hey, these maps in the back of your Bibles come in real handy. Um, I've, I've got a map back here that shows where Capernaum is. It shows where the Gadarene region is, and it shows where Nazareth is. And so let's just say that Jesus left Capernaum and went to the region of the Gadarenes and then back to Nazareth. That's option A. Option B is he left Capernaum, he went to the region of the Gadarenes, and then he went back to Capernaum. Either way, this region of the Gadarenes was out of the way of Jesus, right? And, and again, maybe this answer is clear somewhere in the scriptures. I, I, I didn't see whether he went to Capernaum or Nazareth. Either way, the region of the Gadarenes was the opposite direction, and, and, and it might have even been Capernaum, Gadarenes, back to Capernaum. Could have been Capernaum, Gadarenes, to Nazareth. I, I say all to say, either way, Jesus is going out of his way to encounter these two men. Because the mission of Jesus is that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. And so Jesus took a special trip to the country of the Gadarenes just to see these two demon-possessed men. He, he went from Capernaum through the Sea of Galilee through a great storm to get to the place where he set out to go from the beginning, the, the region of the Gadarenes, and then back to one of these two places. And so this place was totally out of the way, but here's what we need to hear. This was no, this was no, um, this was no, the storm didn't, roll them up onto the shores of the Gadarenes, right? It wasn't like Jesus set out from Capernaum and said, I'm, I'm going somewhere, but you know, the storm had other plans, and so the storm just kind of led us this way. No, we, we, hopefully we've already established that that's not how Jesus operates. Jesus doesn't accidentally end up anywhere. Jesus ends up in this place, and it was the, precisely the location that Jesus set out to go was to meet these two demon-possessed man. And why did he do this? Well, according to our context, he did it first and primarily to display his power and authority over the spiritual realm. That's, why, that's, that's what this story is about, that Jesus has power and authority over the spiritual realm, but also, is it this or that? Maybe it can be both but also to fulfill the mission of Jesus to seek and to save that which was lost. This great God, this great Lord that we have acts with ultimate authority and, as this section will wrap up in chapter nine, also with great compassion. I don't know about you, but that is utterly captivating to me. What kind of king, Asher? <laughs> there he is. Oh, Spider Whoa, Spider Man. What kind of king acts with such ultimate authority, yet, <laughs> yet with such great compassion? Christ. Yeah, Jesus. This ought to utterly captivate us that this Savior, this long-awaited Messiah acts with such grandiose authority. And yet, as the text will say in Matthew 9, if you want to see where it talks about that, at the end of Matthew 9, 
in verse 36 that he also acts with such great compassion. This is the captivating part of who Jesus is, that he is both ultimately authoritative and that he is compassionate. The one who deserves to be sought, yet who seeks, pursues, heals, and saves us. Hey, like, kings don't, kings who have face to save don't put themselves in the kind of vulnerable position that Jesus did, where, where Jesus is the one who sought. Hey, prideful, earthly kings are the kind of kings that have the mentality of, if you want to talk to me, schedule an appointment. If you want to talk to me, go through the chain of command, and, and we're going to make it as hard as you possibly can to get any kind of access to me. Yet Jesus is not only the kind of God who we have access to, but the kind of God who seeks after that which was lost. And that's what he does in this text. He speaks the word go with authority. But this whole encounter in 28 through 34 is no accident. No accident. Remember in John chapter 4, um, the woman at the well, um, and the, the, the woman says, I wasn't prepared for this. The woman says something to the effect of, or no, no, it wasn't the woman, it was actually John, John writing um, in verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. And in parentheses, he says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So there was a, a cultural and, and, and racial tension that existed between Jews and Samaritans. But what should astonish us even more deeply is that there, there wasn't one of these distinctions. There was a distinction not only between ethnicity, there was a distinction between deity here. That, that Jesus interacted with these men who did not deserve for anyone to come out and see them. They were men of the caves. And Jesus is constantly interacting with people who you least expect him, the son of God, to interact with. And so Matthew 8 tells us the story of Jesus setting out on a mission, on a mission to the Gadarenes to fulfill the mission that he says he's on in Luke 19. Um, one more significant aspect of this particular um, mission really serves for us as a prophetic component. Okay, let's read this real quick. Verse 32, and he said to them, go. So they came out and they went into the pigs and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. Um, I didn't catch this early on, but as I studied and read it over and over again, I think that this serves... For us, if you like prophecy, I think it even serves as a little bit of a prophetic moment of what is, 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 what is in store for Satan for all of eternity. Um, and, and that's just the simple instance of the herd rushing in and drowning in the sea. This, this is prophetic of what Jesus will one day do when he puts a final end to death and evil. Jesus has authority, but we also know, I mean, there's, there's not a person here who would disagree. We also know that, like, sin and evil still exist, right? For, for whatever reason, 
Sin and evil are still here because Jesus has not returned to make all things new. But, but, but this is prophetic for us. It's representative of the authority that Jesus will display over all spheres of life when that day comes. Look, the, 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 the demons say, have you come here to torment us before the time? They know there's a time coming. We don't know whether the time is the cross or the time is the end. We, we, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, you, maybe you do. But we know that the, the, the demons know there's a day coming, that, that their days are numbered. And so also interesting in this scenario of the pigs jumping into the sea is that the pigs stampede and die in the sea, which almost swallowed up the disciples. You see that? This, this sea that the disciples just came off of, where they thought, we're gonna die, Jesus preserved them, and yet the pigs jump off into that same sea that almost swallowed up the disciples where Jesus delivered them from. What a, what a beautiful thing. So unlike these disciples who follow Jesus, these demons disappear forever into the depths of the sea. And so Jesus is displaying his authority over sin and evil in an act of divine judgment also. There's some of these themes in this, in this text of divine judgment. He's, he's displaying his authority over sin and evil in an act of divine judgment that really foreshadows what he will one day do to sin and evil. But he's also displayed an authoritative act of divine mercy towards the disciples in preserving their life. And Jesus foreshadows a day where peace alone will be what reigns on the earth. There will be no more sickness, no more sadness. There will be no more sin or evil or death or brokenness or anything like that. And, and Jesus serves to just give everyone around these, these demon-possessed men, these Gadarene maniacs, Jesus is just giving us a little glimpse of what he's got the ultimate, power, ultimate authority and power to do. And that's to crush the head of the serpent. And what a, a beautiful thing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Um, we thank you for um, what you show us in your word um, about who you are, the hope that you give us in your word. Um, Lord, I, I, I'm confident that many in here this morning deal with the effects of sin and the reality of, of evil, the reality of, of, um, of, of those things that are still present in this world. But Lord, may we trust in a God who has authority over those things and who has the, the power to deliver us from those things. And I just pray, Lord, that we would, would give ourselves to you as your people in more deep and meaningful, life-giving ways. We pray these things in your name, amen.